Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. I'm recording today's podcast late Saturday afternoon on August 8th. And the reason that I haven't done any podcasts since Tuesday is because I haven't had any internet access either at my home or at my office in Connecticut. That was a result of a power outage uh, following the tropical storm that passed by our area on Tuesday afternoon. It completely knocked out power in most of the state, but certainly uh, in my area of the state. I've been on generator or was on generator at my house the entire time, but the power must have gone out uh, at the company that provides uh, my internet, my cable, because even though I had power from my generator, I didn't have internet. I didn't have my phones. And in fact, even my cell phone, the power was out for the cell phone towers. So there was no data. Even if I was able to get a cell phone signal, which I would have to get from you know outside, I couldn't get one from inside the house. But if I went outside, I could get a, a weak signal and I can make a phone call. And once in a while, I can get a text message. But I had no data. And in fact, at one point, I couldn't even get data you know, anywhere in the state. But I think after a couple of days, if I drove far enough from my house, I could get a cell signal that would enable me to actually, you know, get some emails or receive some emails or look at the Internet. But I had very limited access. And of course, my office in Connecticut had no power at all and had no generator. uh, So uh, it was no use to me either. So I finally got the power back, the city power earlier today. And with it, uh, my Internet connection was restored. And so now I can uh, record this podcast. But, you know, a lot of people, when I tweeted about the fact that I you know, had no power, they just assumed that I was in Puerto Rico. Like, hey, you know, that serves you right for living in Puerto Rico, except Puerto Rico has power. It was Connecticut that didn't have power. Uh, you know, so it's not just Puerto Rico. You know, we have all of these power lines in Connecticut that are above ground in the trees. And we have a lot of trees here. And when there's a wind, the trees blow down and they knock down the power lines. You would think that a supposedly wealthy state like Connecticut, although the government is broke, but uh, a lot of the people are not, you would think that we would have at least had the money over time to bury those power lines in the ground years ago so that they wouldn't be susceptible right, or vulnerable uh, to falling trees. I mean, I mean it, that doesn't seem like it is a difficult concept to grasp. But instead, you know, we're wasting all this money on big government. But one thing that we could do is put the power lines underground. And that hasn't happened. And who knows if that's going to ever happen. And so Connecticut is going to have to continue to suffer these types of power blackouts. Although I think more blackouts are coming, not because of Mother Nature. I think they're going to be man-made because I do expect blackouts to be routine in America once the dollar crashes and it sends the cost of generating power through the roof, 
and a lot of Americans can no longer afford to pay for it. But that's the subject of a different podcast. There's a lot I want to discuss today. Let me start with the action in precious metals, because when I recorded my podcast on Tuesday, gold had finally gotten above 2000 for the first time uh, in history. We saw the price of silver move above $26 an ounce. And I said at that time, I thought this was going to be the beginning of a much bigger move, not the end of a move. And so far, uh, trading action seems to be uh, proving my point here. Uh, Gold did get as high as 2,070-something. I don't know exactly where it hit in in the cash market. And silver got over $29 an ounce. I think at its high point, we were less than 30 cents away from $30 silver. And this was on uh, late Thursday night, early uh, Friday morning before we got a reversal and both gold and silver sold off. In fact, gold was down about 40 bucks at one point on Friday, and that's down on the day. So obviously it was much lower than the earlier rally. I think gold was up about 12 bucks at the highs, so better than a $50 correction in the price of gold. But it still closed the week uh, above 2000 In fact, we closed at 2000 and $34.80, so almost $2,035. We're up 3% on the week, so a new uh, closing high on a weekly basis for the price of gold. Silver, even though it had a big pullback, down 57 cents on the day, it still closed above 28. We closed at $28.32. That was a 15.5% gain on the week, despite the pullback that we had on Friday. And of course, the gain was even greater uh, earlier that morning when silver was you know, close to $30 an ounce. But while gold and silver continued to rally, the gold and silver mining stocks ran into a lot of selling. In fact, the selling started on Thursday. Even though the price of gold and silver was up strongly on Thursday, you had across-the-board selling in the gold stocks. And then again, gold stocks went down again on Friday when the price of gold and silver finally pulled back after you know several days of gains. Although now I think gold has been up uh, for nine consecutive weeks. And of course, you know, during those nine weeks, there have been down days. I mean, nothing goes up every single day and gold and silver are not gonna be the exception uh, to that rule. There are no bull markets that are up every day. You're always going to have down days. But it seems like the people who are buying and selling gold stocks haven't figured this out yet. In fact, in general, gold stocks were down on the week. In fact, most silver stocks finished the week in the red, right? Even though silver itself was up 15.5%, silver stocks were down on the week. And the uh, GDX, which is the uh, you know, the big index of gold mining companies, the index itself finished down on the week. I mean, it wasn't down a lot, but the fact that it was down at all really tells you something, again, about the nature of this bull market and the wall of worry that it has been scaling almost ever since it started. I mean, I have been talking about this phenomenon on this podcast the entire time that gold stocks have not really confirmed the bull market. Even though the bull market is taking place anyway, we haven't seen it in gold stocks. Now, for a while, we hadn't seen it in silver, right? A lot of the reasons that people were kind of diminishing the significance of the gold bull market was they said, hey, it's not being confirmed by silver, right? Gold is going up, but silver is going nowhere. And you can't have a bull market in gold unless you have a bull market in silver, well, okay, now we have a bull market in silver. We've had a significant breakout in the price of silver, but still people don't believe this bull market. I mean, this is probably the most unloved gold bull market I've ever seen in in, in my career. I mean, you have so much going for this market. The fundamentals are better than any fundamentals I've ever experienced for gold. And the technicals are fantastic. I mean, look at a chart. I defy you to find a better looking chart, really, than the gold chart. So you got a great uh, chart. 
You've got great fundamentals, yet still people don't believe this bull market. And the proof that they don't believe the bull market is the gold stocks. They are not uh, rallying the way you would expect. They are being dragged, kicking and screaming to new highs by a relentless bull market that everybody assumes is over. Look, the difference, I think, between what's going on in mining stocks and what's going on in the metal itself is that you have different pools of buyers. The buyers for gold and silver are real buyers, right? These are people and central banks. And when it comes to gold, that's central banks, right? But central banks are not really buying silver. They're buying gold, but individuals are buying silver. But the buyers of physical metal are buying as an alternative to fiat money, right? Whether they're in Europe or in Asia or South America or the United States, they are voting with their feet. They are running away from their fiat currencies and they are running towards a real monetary alternative in gold and silver. So those are the buyers. And then, of course, you have industrial buyers who may need gold and silver, who are buying it because they need to have it. So you have that continuing real-world demand uh, for these metals. But then you have individual and uh, institutional demand, central bank demand, for uh, gold and silver. And I think more central banks are evaluating their reserves, are looking at the fiscal profligacy now run amok of the U.S. government, looking at these deficits spiraling out of control and the printing presses running you know, nonstop. And they are making strategic decisions that they need to own more gold in their reserves. So the buyers there are real buyers. They're defensive buyers. They're buying at a necessity. They're buying to preserve and protect their purchasing power. On the other hand, if you look at the buyers of gold stocks, these are speculators. These are investors. These are stock buyers, right? People who are buying stocks. The central banks in general, right? Obviously, you've got the Swiss Central Bank. <laughs> They've been buying a lot of stocks. But in general, central banks are not buying stocks. Individuals are, right? They're buying stocks and they're betting on what they think is going to happen. So people who are buying gold want to own gold, right? They, they, they don't really care what's happening. They're just buying. And they're bullish because they're buying. But the investors in gold mining companies are simply looking at gold stocks as investments, as businesses. And they're trying to decide whether or not they think these businesses are appropriately valued or whether or not uh, the, the share price is going to go up or whether or not they're going to be in a position to raise the dividend. And I think the investment community that is looking at gold stocks believes that the gold rally is not going to last. They feel that gold is going to sell off, that this is just a temporary rally, and therefore they don't believe that gold mining companies are actually going to benefit from this temporary increase in the price of gold because they're looking at long-term earnings. And obviously, if the price increase is only temporary, then there isn't going to be a long-term boost to the value of their earnings, and therefore there's no reason to buy the stock. Now, there are some people who buy gold stocks, like me, right, who also are very bearish on the dollar and think the price of gold is going to go up. But I think we're kind of in the minority. I think the big money that buys stocks and that manages other people's money, they are just looking at gold stocks and not seeing the value. And they just expect gold to go down. Uh, because they assume it's maybe it's related to COVID, you know, that as soon as we have a cure, then gold's going to go down. Or, you know, as soon as the Fed's going to raise rates, when we have a cure for COVID, gold's going to crash, right? It's just this temporary thing. They don't understand the fundamentals. And so that's obvious because every time the price of gold goes up, they expect it to fall. And every time the price of gold falls, they think it's going to keep falling because they feel that that's some kind of vindication. Meanwhile, the price of gold keeps going up. I mean, gold stocks today, even though gold closed at 2035, 
most of the gold stocks are lower than they were when it was $1,935, $100 lower. And of course, a lot of people didn't think it was going to break 2000 They just thought, oh, we just hit the 1900 We just made a new high. And now it's time for the price of gold to go down. So the price of gold continues to defy uh, the so-called experts. It continues to quietly make new highs. And, uh, you know, this bull market is just going to keep going until ultimately the gold stocks uh, participate, just like silver. How long did it take before silver joined the gold party? It eventually did, right? So the same thing is going to happen with gold stocks. Eventually, we're going to see gold stocks behaving the way they should behave. Now, it's not that they haven't gone up. They have gone up. And people who own gold stocks are doing well. I mean, gold stocks are still beating the S&P substantially year to date. It's just that given how much gold and silver have risen year to date, gold stocks should have gone up a lot more. And more importantly, given how, given how bullish the fundamentals are for higher prices in the future. See, that's what these stocks are not getting or what investors are not getting. They're not looking into the future and realizing that the monetary fiscal policies that have already driven gold past 2000 are going to continue and drive it past 3000, 4000, 5000. So all of this potential should be reflected in the share price of these stocks, but it's not. And therein lies the opportunity. Because I am not upset that gold stocks haven't gone up more. I'm actually relieved. You know, we're getting a lot of new clients at Europe Pacific Capital. A lot of people are now discovering me. Uh, they're opening up accounts, they're sending money, and this is really a godsend. The fact that all of this can be happening and the price of these gold stocks can still be as cheap as they are and these silver stocks still be as cheap as they are, this is just a window of opportunity for people to buy. It is a blessing, not even in disguise. I mean, I mean I'm mean, i welcoming this blessing. I just want more and more of my clients and my new clients in particular, because a lot of my old clients... They already own a bunch of gold stocks. They already have gold. So as far as they're concerned, yeah, let the price go up. But I know that we're getting a lot of new clients who don't own any gold and still need to buy it, that don't own any mining stocks, that still need to get that exposure. And so the cheaper we can buy these stocks, the better. The only question is, I don't know how much longer that window of opportunity is going to be open. So I would just quickly go through before it slams shut. And I do believe that maybe when we finally get a huge move in these mining stocks, may maybe that would be the beginning of a correction. Uh, I wouldn't believe that it will be the end of the bull market. This bull market is not going to end for a long, long time. But like all bull markets, I do expect it to have corrections from time to time. And those are just better opportunities for people to buy. Another story that continued to develop during the week, and I touched on it on my last podcast, was Donald Trump's ban on TikTok, which he has now basically solidified. I forget how many days uh, the clock is ticking on TikTok, but it's not that many. And then when it strikes down, uh, if TikTok has not been sold to Microsoft or somebody else, it's going to be banned in the U.S. But now it's not just TikTok that's going to be banned, but WeChat which is another Chinese uh, company that is owned by Tencent, which, by the way, Tencent is one of the stocks that we own for our clients in our managed portfolios and in our mutual funds. It's a fantastic company. The stock was down about 6 or 7% on Friday in response to the proposed ban on, on WeChat. But again, all of this, I believe, is undermining the United States as a safe depository uh, for capital. The idea that you know we have respect for private property and that we respect the rule of law. And you know, I've been noticing a lot of people commenting that, hey, you know, China doesn't respect it. I mean, so why should we? I mean, the Chinese companies, you know, require all this stuff. So, you know, tit for tat, right? But there's a big difference. See, China is not exactly known for its uh, private property rights or for the rule of law. That's what America is known for. That's part of what is, you know, our reputation has been built on. And, you know, to try to undermine that reputation, you know, China doesn't have that reputation to lose. America does. And, you know, since we run these huge trade deficits and huge current account deficits, we need to attract capital. 
And one of the ways we've been able to attract capital is because we've had a respect for private property and the rule of law. At least that's been uh, the perception that the world has had. Well, to the extent that they had that perception, they're not going to have it anymore. And ultimately, we are shooting ourselves in the foot. And this is just a, another reason uh, to be bearish on the U.S. and another reason that the dollar is going to lose its status as a reserve currency. Uh, but the main reason we're going to lose it uh, is our monetary and fiscal policy. And that was highlighted uh, earlier this afternoon, just before I began recording this podcast, I watched President Trump's press conference. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. In which he uh, basically once again bragged about how great the economy was prior to COVID, how it was the greatest economy. He had helped create the greatest economy in the history of the world. Uh, he bragged again about the record highs in the stock market. Oh, and of course, you know, talking about all the jobs that have been created. Yes, oh, I almost forgot. We did get the jobs report on Friday. The uh, government non-farm uh, payroll numbers came out. The initial consensus was for the creation of 1.675 million jobs and for the unemployment rate to fall from 11.1% to 10.5%. And we ended up getting a stronger number. There was 1,763,000 jobs created, and the unemployment rate went down to 10.2%. And so this was seen as good news. In fact, I think this spin on this number as being good news is a reason that the dollar rallied on Friday and another reason that gold corrected and we had this, you know, $35 sell off in the price of gold and moved down in the price of silver was the perception that the economy is strengthening based on the fact that we beat the estimate. We created all these jobs. And of course, Donald Trump was bragging about the 1.763 million jobs that were created. Of course, these jobs weren't created. These were jobs that were lost being uh, restored. I mean, there's nothing to brag about when you destroy jobs and they come back. It's not real job creation. But the fact of the matter is a lot of these restored jobs are not going to last, right? They're only here temporarily. They are going to go away, right? We're going to go uh, down and we're going to see much larger unemployment numbers. And by the way, that 10.2% unemployment number is not low, even if you just look at 10.2%. But if you take a look at the U6 rate, which includes the people who are working part-time, but who are doing so involuntarily, they want a full-time job, but they had to settle for a part-time job. And when you count the discouraged workers, the U6 rate is 16.5%. That's a lot of unemployment, 16.5%. And of course, that doesn't even tell the whole story because the people who are not working, who have been discouraged, for more than a year, those people are not counted. So they only count you as being a discouraged worker if you've been discouraged for less than a year. Once you've been discouraged for more than a year, you drop out of the data. You're not even part of that 16.5%. So the real unemployment rate is considerably higher than 20%, maybe 25%. It's around the same level as it was during the Great Depression of the 1930s when we counted all the discouraged workers, regardless of how long they had been discouraged. And we counted all of the part-time people who really wanted full-time jobs. And by the way, look at the labor force participation rate. That continues to be low. It's 61.4%. It actually went down uh, from the prior month's 61.5%. So one of the reasons that the unemployment rate went down is because more people threw in the towel and decided they're not even looking for jobs. Because remember, if you're not working, but you're not looking, then you're not officially counted as, as being unemployed.
But in addition to bragging about these numbers, right, and bragging about the great economy that we supposedly had and that he created, Donald Trump issued some executive orders, signed the orders. You know, it was a big press conference where he signed these orders. And all of this stuff, everything that the president did was not only bad policy, but it was unconstitutional, right? Because the president does not have the authority to legislate by executive order. I mean, executive orders are supposed to be limited to the powers that the executive has in the Constitution. So the executive, the president is the commander in chief. So he can have an executive order regarding how the military is deployed, but he can't create legislation and just call it an executive order. He can't impose taxes or reduce taxes or alter existing legislation, which is what he did. The president basically did several things with the executive order. One is that he suspended the requirement for workers to pay the payroll tax. So the employers still have to pay their portion, which of course comes from their workers, but the workers no longer have to pay their portion of the payroll tax, which supposedly goes to both Social Security and to Medicare. And so the suspension lasts all the way through the end of the year. So obviously past the election and to the end of this calendar year. The president has no authority to do this, but he is doing it anyway. Now, of course, the other problem is going to be that this is a suspension. So in theory, the money is going to be owed. So all these Americans who are now going to get a raise in pay, they're going to have extra money. They're obviously going to spend that money, right? They're not going to be setting it aside. In fact, the goal is to get them to spend it, right? President Trump wants Americans to spend that money. He wants to artificially goose the economy with some Keynesian uh, pump priming. So he wants Americans to take that money and spend it. Well, then how are they going to pay, you know, come uh, January of 2021, how are they then going to pay back all of the unemployment taxes that they still owe, right? This is going to be a huge liability uh, that Americans are going to have. So it's going to be a big tax hike when Americans not only have to pay their current obligation for payroll taxes, but they have to pay their prior obligations uh, that were deferred, which of course, how's that going to happen? Because the president knows that the Americans aren't going to have the money. So now we're either going to have to forgive the money. Uh, some Obviously, Congress is going to have to do something. But of course, Trump is trying to bribe the electorate by saying if he gets reelected, he'll cancel the obligation. He'll basically make it permanent or permanently eliminate by executive order uh, the payroll tax. He's basically trying to bribe voters into voting for him by saying, hey, I'm going to let you off the hook uh, for the payroll tax. And if you reelect me, then it's permanent. But if you don't reelect me, you're going to have to pay this money back. But of course, you know, does is Biden going to want to make them pay it back? I mean, look, once the government... Uh, does something like this, there is no turning back, right? Because nobody is going to want to be the bearer of that bad news. But the real bad news is the fact that Trump is not acting like the president. He's, He's acting like a king. You know, we have a constitutional republic. We have a system of checks and balances. And the Congress or the Constitution, um, gives all legislative authority to Congress, not to the president. Right. Even if you remember from grammar school, right, the president proposes, Congress disposes. The president can't command. He can propose legislation, but ultimately Congress has to decide if they want to pass it. Now, the president has to sign it into law or, you know, if he doesn't want to sign it, Congress can override his veto with a two thirds vote and make it law anyway without the president's signature. But the president just can't enact law. And he can't alter the laws that have already been enacted. And that would include uh, the the Social Security payroll tax. Look, I'm against this tax. The tax itself is bad. The whole Social Security program that it supposedly finances is bad. But that doesn't mean the president can alter it. The Supreme Court needs to strike it down, and they should. 
uh, because it is the whole thing is unconstitutional. But what the president is doing is also unconstitutional, and two wrongs don't make a right. And it's not like the president is saying, hey, the payroll tax is unconstitutional, so I'm going to do the Supreme Court's job. No, he's also uh, extending the supplemental unemployment benefits for $100 a week. So not $600 a week, $400 a week. That's almost as bad, not quite as bad as $600, but it's still bad. It still shouldn't be done. It's bad policy. It is going to encourage people not to return to work because many people are still going to be getting more money on unemployment than they would get if they returned to work. So a lot of people would have to pay to get their jobs back, which they're not going to do. But, you know, what Donald Trump should be doing is allowing this whole thing to lapse. I mean, of course, he was bragging about how well it worked. He was bragging about how well uh, the PPP worked. Look, if there was any doubt in anybody's mind that Donald Trump was a conservative, this should basically clear it up. What is Donald Trump using his supposed authority? Because Donald Trump believes that the president has the authority to do whatever he wants by executive order, right? I guess he didn't have a civics in eighth grade, right? He just thinks the president can do whatever it wants. Well, if that's true, why doesn't Donald Trump use his executive authority to cut government spending, right? Cut something, eliminate agencies, eliminate departments, do something to make government smaller. Everything that Trump is doing is to make government bigger. And I don't care that he's cutting taxes. It doesn't matter. He's making government bigger. The government is spending more money. He just doesn't want to pay for it honestly. He just wants the Federal Reserve to pay for it. So what Donald Trump is, he's a big government liberal. He wants massive government. He doesn't have any faith in capitalism or the free market. He believes in big government and central banking. So what he wants is the government to spend a bunch of money and for the Federal Reserve to print it, right? The Federal Reserve to buy up all the bonds so the government can spend all this money. He only wants to talk about cutting taxes because he knows his base, right? Because the conservatives, they like tax cuts, but they're supposed to like tax cuts because they like small government. And the reason that you like small government is because small government is less expensive. So if government is small, then taxes can be lower. But if government is going to be big, then taxes have to be higher. And that's what Donald Trump is delivering. He's delivering big government. And so that big government has to be paid for. Donald Trump just wants the taxpayers to pay for it through inflation. And they're going to pay for it in spades. They're going to pay through the nose. As I've been saying, the most expensive way to pay for government is through inflation. And we're about to have the most expensive government in the history of America and therefore, the inflation tax is going to be the highest in the history of America. Another uh, executive order Trump has is a moratorium on uh, evictions. So he is trampling on the property rights of property owners, uh, people who own rental property. Uh, they no longer have the ability to evict tenants who are not paying uh, their rent. And, you know, you have a lot of these people who are not paying their rent who actually have more money with which to pay rent now than they had before. Because if they're getting these $400 a week checks and they were getting $600 a week, and that's actually more than they were getting when they had their jobs, what is their excuse for not paying their rent? Their excuse is they know they can't be evicted and they can't be punished for not paying. So if you create a situation where you incentivize people not to pay their rents, they won't pay their rents. That's exactly what... The the U.S. government is doing. But, you know, the worst part about all this is the precedent that we are creating, the power that we are investing in the presidency. And, you know, Donald Trump is basically daring the Democrats to sue, right, to block him because he's saying, look, if they want to sue me, if they want to try to go to court to stop this, well, they're going to be suing to prevent people from getting money, right? And so maybe Donald Trump is hoping that the Democrats will sue because then they'll be seen as the bad guys that stop the $400 checks from going out or that, 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 you know, that stop the deferral of the, the payroll tax. So politically, you might think this is a shrewd chess move, right, that Trump has made uh, because he's put the Democrats in a bad situation. He does something that's obviously unconstitutional, 
but he knows that the Democrats don't want to challenge the unconstitutional nature of what he's done. The problem is none of the Republicans have the guts to challenge it either. And Trump knows that because how is a Republican going to stand up to Trump and try to file a suit uh, to try to block what Trump wants to do? So he knows that the Republicans won't act and the Democrats can't act because they would be, you know, the ones that were preventing people from getting all this supposedly free money. But that is the problem, because if the Republicans fail to act when Donald Trump abuses the executive power to this degree, then on what basis will they be able to object next year when President Biden uses his executive authority to do whatever he wants, right? What if he just imposes the Green New Deal by executive order or any kind of harebane socialist scheme? I mean, because once we set the precedent, if if President Trump can suspend the payroll tax without Congress, if he can uh, impose rent moratoriums or eviction moratoriums, if he can just give every unemployed American $400 a week without congressional legislation, then, then, then what, can, what can't the president do? The president can do whatever he wants. And it's one thing, you know, you have a lot of Republicans that are happy to, to, to allow Trump to have this power. That's a mistake because you, you may think it's a good power when the guy who wields it is your friend. But what happens when the guy who wields the same power is your enemy? You know, that is the big risk. That is the bad precedent that we are are setting. You know, Trump was accusing Congress of obstructing, right? That's why he said that he needed to do this, because the Congress was obstructing the things that he wanted to do. Well, that's what Congress was designed to do. It's supposed to obstruct. I mean, that's why the founding fathers created the American Republic, the way they did. They didn't want stuff to get done. They wanted stuff to be blocked. They wanted things to be obstructed. The whole country was designed for obstruction because basically we started out with this great republic where Americans had all these freedoms and all these rights and government just had a few powers and responsibilities. And so the founding fathers didn't want that to change. Because any change would probably be changed from the worst because we started off with minimal government and maximum freedom. And the founding fathers wanted to make it difficult to screw that up. So that was the whole concept of checks and balances was there to prevent that from happening. Everything about our government is about disruption. You know, even the way Congress itself works and the rules there, it's meant to be disruptive and difficult to get things passed. See, the problem is we haven't had enough obstruction. Too many rules and regulations have been passed, despite the fact that we had a Congress and an executive order and a Supreme Court that was supposed to be disruptive, right? Because even if Congress passes something, the president has to sign it. He can disrupt Congress. If the majority of Congress wants to do something, one man can can veto it, right? Or the Supreme Court could strike it down. Even if Congress passes it and the president signs it, the Supreme Court could say, uh-uh, that's unconstitutional. You can't do that, right? Everybody is supposed to obstruct. Each branch is supposed to obstruct the other branches. You just can't get around that. What the president wants to do is say, hey, Congress is obstructing me, so I'm just going to get around the law. I'm going to get around the Constitution with this executive order. Well, you can't do that. You destroy the whole Uh, nature of the republic. You get rid of all the checks and balances that were painstakingly written in to the Constitution by the framers. You know, the other thing I hear when it comes to TikTok and and China is people are saying, well, you know, the the Chinese are getting our data and Trump has to do this. So the Chinese don't have access to our data because the Chinese government can get any of this data from the Chinese companies and they're going to use this information in some harmful way. Come on, give me a break. How is the Chinese government going to use this information, even if they get it, to harm us, right? China has no jurisdiction over Americans. I mean, unless Americans want to go visit China, the Chinese government can't do anything to us unless we're in China. While we're in America, living our lives, 
the Chinese government can't do anything with the data that it gets from Chinese companies, right, about our buying preferences or whatever data they're storing. The real risk is the data that the U.S. government has access to, right? Every U.S. company, right, whether it's Facebook or whether it's Google, uh, the U.S. government can get all that data, right? They keep all this data and the U.S. government can get it, right? No U.S. company is going to deny the U.S. government those requests. U.S. government says, hey, I want to see this data. It's the U.S. government that can harm its citizens with that data. That is the problem. Americans should not care if the Chinese government gets the data. They need to care if the U.S. government gets the data because it's the U.S. government that could potentially use that data against us. The U.S. government can fine us. The U.S. government can put us in jail. The Chinese government can't do anything to us. Now, I know a lot of people think, well, but Peter, you know, the U.S. government can only put you in jail if you're committing a crime. Well, how do you know what innocent activity may be considered a crime in the future, right? Who knows, right? A very corrupt government can turn a lot of Americans into criminals, right? We could all be engaged in illegal activity, but it may not be illegal today. And, you know, so that's where I'm concerned, right? If we have a very corrupt government and then you have some people, some citizens that want to uh, resist that corruption, that want to lead some type of revolution, right, that are legitimate freedom fighters, then the U.S. government uses all this data to shut that rebellion down, to ferret these so-called criminals out and to put them in political prisons, right? So it's not the Chinese government that, that can do that. It's our government. It's the American government. And I'm not talking about necessarily the American government today. I'm talking about the American government of the future. See, a lot of people aren't worried about the U.S. government getting their data because they think the U.S. government is good. Well, even if they're good today, that doesn't mean they're going to be good tomorrow. And in fact, having the data and having access to the data means that they have less checks and balances against them. They have less of an incentive to stay good if they know they have this kind of power, if they know they can get sensitive information. And you have no idea what innocent activity that you are involved in today online that may be converted into a crime in the future. And now the U.S. government can get all that data and they can use that data against you to fine you, to prosecute you, to uh, imprison you. So for all this talk about, oh my God, I mean, we have to, we have to make sure the Chinese government doesn't get their hands on the data. The, the real threat is the U.S. government getting the hands on the data. I wanted to finish up the podcast, though, by talking about a argument that I had with Jim Rickards in an interview that I did with Kitgo, and they broke the interview down to three parts, and it was the third part of the interview where we had the disagreement. We pretty much agreed on everything up until that point, and you can see all three of these uh, parts up on YouTube, but where we started to argue was on the definition of inflation because Jim kept talking about the fact that we weren't having any inflation. And I said, but Jim, we have massive inflation. What do you think the Federal Reserve is doing? They're inflating like crazy. They're printing all this money. Money supply is expanding. And then Jim said, no, 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 that's not inflation. Inflation is rising prices. And I said, but Jim, that's not the definition of inflation. And he said, sure, you can't just make up any definition that you want. And I said, I'm not the one making it up. It's the government that made up a definition. And I pointed out to Jim that the original definition of inflation was an expansion of the supply of money and credit, and that it was the government that had altered the definition to suit its own purpose. And I said that he was simply helping to perpetuate government propaganda by pretending that inflation was what the government claims it is, rather than what it actually is. Because the reason the government wants to claim that inflation is rising prices is because then it can pretend that it doesn't cause it. Right. If the government accepts the definition of inflation as an expansion of the supply of money, well, everybody knows who's expanding the supply of money. It's the Fed. So when you have an accurate definition of inflation, then you know exactly who's to blame. But if the government can fool people into believing that an effect of inflation is inflation, well, then they can blame it on whoever's raising the prices. And that's what they do. They blame it on greedy capitalists, or they blame it on labor unions, or they blame it on OPEC, or they blame it on speculators, or they can blame it on the Chinese. 
And so what Jim Rickards is doing is helping the government deflect blame away from itself and to mislead and fool the public into believing that inflation is rising prices when, in fact, inflation is an expansion in the supply of money and credit. And it's the Federal Reserve that is doing the inflating. And in fact, I even pointed out to Jim Rickards that if he had an old dictionary and he looked up inflation, that that would be the definition, that it would say inflation was an expansion of the money supply and the credit supply. And Jim said no. He basically disagreed with me and said, no, inflation is increasing prices. And that's always been the definition. And I knew he was wrong about that. And in fact, uh, somebody who had watched that uh, emailed me a photograph because they had an older Webster's Dictionary, I think from the 1960s. And so he sent me a picture and then I tweeted out the picture. You can see it on, uh, on my Twitter, but I've got it in front of me. I will read the definition right now. And here it is, inflation, the act of inflating, the state of being inflated, sharp increase in amount of money and credit causing advances in the general price level. So the definition of inflation mentions increases in the general price level, but only as the result of inflation, which had it already defined as being a sharp increase in the amount of money and credit. That was the definition. Inflation, sharp increase in the amount of money and credit, causing advances in the price level. So advances in the price level are not inflation. They were caused by inflation. Inflation was defined as a sharp increase in the amount of money and credit, not an advancement in a general level of prices. The dictionary simply mentioned that inflation caused a increase in the level of prices, but defined the inflation itself as a sharp increase in the amount of money and credit. And in fact, if you go far enough back into the past, if you get a dictionary maybe from the 1930s, right, and you look up inflation, it won't even mention prices. I have seen old Webster's dictionaries where they define the word inflation and they don't even mention prices. They simply define inflation as an expansion in the supply of money and credit, and they leave it at that. It was at some point in the future that they added the effect of inflation on the general price level. But of course, if you get a dictionary today, if you look up inflation in a 2020 edition of Webster's you know, Dictionary, they're not going to mention money supply. It's simply going to say inflation is an increase in the general price level. So the definition has simply been altered over time, but that doesn't actually change the real meaning of the word. But this is what we see all the time, right? This happens with the constitution, right? Where definitions are changed, right? The government changes the way terms are defined the same way uh, that we measure economic statistics. The government changes the way inflation is measured. The government changes the way GDP is measured. The government changes the way unemployment is measured, right? They're always changing the meaning of words to try to advance a political agenda. And that's exactly what's happened with the word inflation. And so I think people need to stay true to uh, reality. I don't care if the government wants to misdefine inflation. I don't care if the Federal Reserve wants to misdefine inflation. That doesn't mean that we should do it too. People that actually understand what inflation is need to call it what it is. They need to describe inflation accurately. The word itself, inflate. And I keep talking about this. If you even think about the word inflation, what does that mean? Inflate means to expand, right? If you inflate something, you expand it. When you inflate a balloon, right, you blow air into a balloon, what happens to the balloon? It expands, right? It gets larger. When you deflate a balloon, what happens to the balloon? It contracts. So inflation is an expansion. Deflation is a contraction. Prices don't inflate, right? Prices don't expand and contract. Prices go up and prices go down, right? So the word inflate was not meant to refer to prices, which can expand and contract. It was meant to refer to the supply of money and to the supply of credit, which can expand and contract. So I want to keep 
the original definition of inflation because that's key to understanding it. See, when you misdefine inflation as rising prices, the result is bad uh, monetary policy and bad fiscal policy because the government, the central bank, can keep on inflating. And if all they're doing is looking at consumer prices and they don't see them going up and they think, oh, there's no inflation, they can keep on creating it. And inflation is doing a lot of damage. And of course, the other problem is the way they're measuring consumer prices is so flawed that you don't even see the effects of inflation because they're being masked behind a rigged CPI. So the government keeps on creating inflation and then they point to this rigged CPI that says there's no inflation. You know, it's like if you have a thermometer that's broken, right? And no matter what your temperature is, it says 98.6. You can be as sick as a dog, but if you keep relying on that thermometer, that broken thermometer, then you don't think you're sick. Well, you know, you could ignore all the signs, right, that, that the patient is shivering and there's, you know, and, you know, they, they got all kinds of symptoms. But if you ignore the symptoms and just look at that broken thermometer, right, the guy's going to eventually die because you're relying on faulty equipment. That is what the Federal Reserve is doing when they're ignoring all of the other effects of inflation and just staring at this broken CPI and thinking that there's no problem. So anyway, I just wanted to bring that up. And that, you know, that tweet is out there with that definition. Uh, but that basically proves that I was right in that bit of a debate. I mean, I got a lot of respect for Jim Rickards, but I wish he would get this one thing right. Stop falling into this trap. This is exactly what the government wants. This is exactly what the Federal Reserve wants. They want us to repeat their lie and to misdefine uh, inflation. Well, I want to call it for what it is. Inflation is an expansion of supply of money and credit, and there's only one cause of inflation, and that is the U.S. government. And when Donald Trump is increasing government spending and cutting taxes, he is calling for more inflation. That's what he wants. He wants the Federal Reserve to inflate the money supply so that we can send out these $400 a month checks. He wants the Federal Reserve to print money so that he can send that money to people on Social Security instead of taking taxes from the current workers. So Donald Trump wants more inflation. The Federal Reserve is going to deliver more inflation. And what Americans need to do is avoid that inflation tax before it's too late by getting money out of U.S. dollars, getting into foreign assets, and getting into gold and silver. Mm-hmm.